Welcome to the Branches podcast. Branches is a community of faith, hope and love in the South Orange County. We are a church for people who don't go to church. If you'd like to learn more about our faith or our community, visit our website at branchesoc.com. So Matthew chapter 16, um, we have been going through the Apostles' Creed. If you don't know anything about the Apostles' Creed, it was, uh, well, we know it was written. We have, we have evidence of that from the 3rd or 4th century. But from most of the evidence we found, it's most likely the 1st or 2nd century. And what it is, is it's the essential beliefs of the church. So as we've talked about, this is the core of what we believe. This is the core of what any other Christ-centered church believes. It's not, it's not weird. It's not like, and you may go, well, why don't you have that part added? Wait, you're missing this. You're missing that. Well, because we don't believe that to be essential. That doesn't mean we don't think it's important, but these are the essentials. So we are going through a six-week uh, study on this, and we are about halfway through. And this, this Sunday is going to be a little rougher than most. Uh, rougher because we are going to focus on the difficult part, I believe, of the creed, which is that Jesus was crucified, died, and buried. But there's so much wrapped up in that, so much wrapped up in for us as followers of Jesus, what does that mean? Because if we're followers of Jesus, and this is what happened to Jesus, see where we're going here? If you're following the man who was crucified, dead, and buried, what does that mean for us? Um, to kind of frame it, um, I want to start by sharing an instance that happened with, my fr- with one of my friends that I think is endemic or systemic with us as Americans, especially for us as American believers. Like, what does it mean to follow Jesus here in America? Well, my buddy, he really wanted to hear this guy speak. I can't remember the guy's name. It was a few years ago. But he drove some distance to this guy's church to hear him speak because this guy was a speaker, I guess, a well-known communicator. And my friend was really passionate about hearing this teaching. So he came, and it was just typical church setting. Uh, he found his parking, went in, and they played the music. So this guy is not one of those music guys. He's probably like many of you are like, wait, why do we do the singing thing at church? I don't get it. Why do we do it? That's him. So Tim, we call him Movi. So if I ever throw out Movi, it's the same guy. Not Moby. I don't know him. This is Movi with a V, and so he, Tim, uh, came and sat down, and they started the music, and they started the worship, and everyone stood up around him, and they're singing, but he wasn't one of those guys that likes to sing, so he just sat there, and he has this internal clock of when it ends, you know, it's like, okay, this goes about 15 minutes at my church, so, well, they passed 15 minutes, they hit 20 minutes, and he immediately, as he re-shared the story when we retold it, he started to get antsy, then they hit 30 minutes, which was freaking him out, like 30 minutes, then 45 minutes. At an hour, he was just losing his mind because he didn't come for any of this. He came to hear this guy teach, to hear all of this, these words of wisdom and these things that he could have that he could apply to his life that would really change his life. That's why he came. He came to get, and here they are just singing, like, what is the deal with this band? Like, is this a performance? And then he went into all of his... Uh, things like, oh, this is a performance, this church is all about, and he started critiquing the whole church for what they were doing. Hour and a half later, the music is still rolling strong, and they stop, and then this man finally comes up, and so, so Tim's like, oh, 
Guy comes up with no Bible, no notes, and he says, you know what, I think this is a good time to stop. I'm going to close us in prayer, and we're going to finish the night off. Needless to say, Tim was not happy. He came to hear this teaching. The teaching wasn't there for him. And before the, the man prayed, he said this. He said, now some of you may have been thrown off because we've done all this worship music and I haven't taught. Tim's nodding, yes. But you know what? When we get together, we need to remember why we're getting together. We get together to give, not to get. We don't come here to receive. We come to give away. And so when we're worshiping, we're singing songs to the Lord. We're praying to him. We're giving to him. When there's a message preacher coming here to say, God, I'm here. I'm going to lay down at your feet. I'm going to sit here. What do you want me to do? I'm here for you. I surrender to you. So it's not a receiving. It's a giving. And then he prayed. And the reason I heard the story from Tim was because it really spoke to him. I think he was very glad. Actually, he said he was really glad he went to hear this guy speak, although he didn't really do any speaking. He just closed it up. But that little lesson, coming to give rather than to get. And I'm not just talking about Sunday mornings here. This creed that we have is not about Sunday mornings. This creed is about our lives. And our lives, so much we come to get than to give. And that's going to be tough for us to hear. Because depending on your age... Some of you are here in the 30s, and that means you have 30 years of training on how to be a consumer. For some of you that are high school age, you've had 17 to 18 years of training on how to get the best for you. And for some of you over 40, 50, 60, whatever your age, you've been trained in a Western culture to learn how to receive. And we take that into our faith, and it was never meant to be there. I would point to the creed, but I think, our, did our computer die, or... Oh, there it is. You were just being very selective and making it black. Very artistic of you, Rob. Good job. So, as we look at this creed, you have to understand the church that followed this creed, this is foreign to them. They wouldn't even understand what we're doing. They're like, wait, you come to receive? That makes no sense. Because this early church, when they were to say this, this is a statement. A statement that cost them greatly. So they would never come to receive they came knowing they were going to be leaving things. They came, their life was literally being given away at times. Um, what we've been doing with this Apostles' Creed is reading to a certain point. We're reading as far as we've studied. So up to this point, we've read to, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. So I want us to, at this point, we're going to stand, and then we're going to go through that creed together to that part. You're going to want to keep going. And then I'll stop you, and you'll be like, oh my gosh, why is he stopping us? So just don't be surprised when I stop you. But by the end of this series, we will have gone through it all together. So if you could stand with me, and we'll read uh, the first part of the creed together up to Pontius Pilate. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and born of the Virgin Mary, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Yeah. Stop, 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 stop. See, it's awkward, isn't it? You still wanted to keep going. So sit down. We'll stop right there. Um, where we left off last week, we left off 
he suffered under Pontius Pilate. And part of what we did last week, if you want to hear it on the podcast, is that we really looked at the historical reference of Jesus. Because he suffered under Pontius Pilate. It's there, not because in the creed we want to blame this guy named Pontius Pilate. It's not there to blame him. It's because that's how they would date things that happened. So instead of saying he suffered in the year 32, they say he suffered under Pontius Pilate because that's how they dated things at that time. Make sense? So he suffered under Pontius Pilate, and then it goes to he was crucified, died, and was buried. They're trying to place Jesus, Jesus historically. And this is in the first century, so it's not that difficult. But there were all these myths going around, not just about Jesus, but about other gods and things. And, it was, and we talked a little bit about that last week. Um, some of the myths that are floating out there. But they were rooting Jesus in time, in our history. But then we go to he was crucified, died, and was buried. Now for us, when we hear crucified, there's actually some, some beauty in that word for us. Because if you have any faith in Christ, then you know that he was crucified. And there's beauty because when you think of crucifixion, it leads you to Jesus. And you have these beautiful thoughts of that. However... For the people in the first century, especially for the people in the first and second and third century who developed this creed, that is not a good word. That is a very painful word. That's not a word that you throw up there of someone that you want to esteem. Because what that's saying is is that Jesus was a convicted criminal. I said that to someone this last week. They're like, really? Jesus was a convicted criminal? Yeah, I mean, he is. He was convicted by the Romans, and he was convicted by the Jewish church. He's a convicted criminal. And they are saying that in their creed. They could have left that out, right? They could have left that out and made it nice. I mean, when you put it in common terms, it'd be saying, like, if, you're, if, you're, if you have a resume and you're trying to get a job, or if you're trying to impress somebody, let's say you're out on a date, and you're with someone, and, and you're trying to impress them, and they say, so tell me about your family. So tell me about your mom. Oh, well, she's on death row. You kind of leave that off to the side, don't you? Like, you don't lead with that. You kind of push that off. Anything else that's not, you know, esteeming to you, you push it to the side. To be crucified was the worst of the worst. I mean, to say that someone's on death row is one thing, but they had different levels of how you'd convict a criminal. And so crucifixion was for the worst, the worst criminals. Uh, the common one we would say would be death row. And so our Jesus was on death row, literally, um, except they had different levels of crucifixion. So what I mean by that is, is that when you were convicted, if you were Roman, you could um, choose another option other than crucifixion. However, if you were poor and not a Roman citizen, then you had to go through crucifixion. If you were a Roman citizen, you could choose to be decapitated. I know that doesn't sound like a great option, but compared to crucifixion, that's why they chose it. You're like, I'm going with that one because of all the shame that was wrapped up in crucifixion. There were all types of amazing people that would be decapitated, or at least it went fast. Crucifixion was slow and painful and filled with shame. So when you read through Hebrews... And it talks, in, um, it talks about fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. This is the writer of Hebrews. The author and perfecter of our faith, who endured the cross, despising its shame, which means the shame associated with it. This 
Crucifixion is a bad word. But yet it was put in the creed. Why? Because it was true. And some of the myths that were floating around that would take that out of it. Oh, Jesus wasn't really crucified. No, what really happened, this is one of the beliefs, is that um, some people believe that when Jesus, uh, the, the idea of Jesus, the Son of God being crucified, was so painful to imagine that they said, well, when he got to the guy that took the cross, Simon, he actually was the one that died on the cross. Like, why? Because the idea of saying that Jesus was crucified was it was too shameful to embrace. And so we want to change it because it doesn't fit for us. And when you think of crucifixion, it was so bad. It was for the, the, the poorest of the poor. And it was also for the worst criminals. And when they were up on the cross, they would stay there. Jesus was taken off the cross because he just happened to be crucified during a religious festival. However, anyone else that was crucified, they were left up there. In fact, you would enter into a city, a Roman city, and to let everybody know, hey, this is a Roman city, stay within the law, you'd come down, there'd be a line of crosses or trees or poles, and people would be stuck to it with their rotting bodies. I know this is gross. I'm not trying to gross you out. I just want to help you to understand what this word means. And they would walk, and the birds would come and pick off the bodies, and eventually the body dries, right? This is, I mean, you do know that, right? Our bodies will eventually completely fall apart. So they're up on the cross, and the bodies are falling apart on the ground, and animals would come and eat. Like, this is the most shameful death ever. And for a culture that was so passionate about the way that their family was buried. I mean, think about the ancient literature you've read and how important it is to take the body and bury it. This is horrible. And yet, this happened. And so for this, these people, this early church, for them to say they believe in Jesus who was crucified, died, and was buried, think of the people around them. The people around them that said, wait, let me get this straight. This Jesus that you believe in, you call him Lord. He was crucified? Like that means something different now, doesn't it? Now that you understand the history. Wait, he was on death row and he was one of the worst of the worst? A convicted criminal? And you call him Lord? Now you do realize there's only one Lord. It's Caesar. If, you were to, if this gets out that you believe this, you know what's going to happen. You're going to be persecuted, you're going to be mocked, and you will probably die. Are you sure you want to believe this? Like the early church, they didn't come. Like when they hear about us and, and what we love about being in the community of faith, we have so much to gain. And they had everything to lose. I want to bring us back to our roots because it's much different today than it was then. These people, when they would say this creed, when they would share their beliefs they were coming to give away. In fact, when they came to share the creed, they weren't allowed to share it right away. They would teach them the creed after they'd been around a while so they could trust them, but they also wanted to know that these people knew what they were getting themselves into. Does that make sense? Like, to follow Jesus, it costs. Like, people are not going to be happy around you. People are going to persecute you. They're going to mock you. And people today, like, we get upset. We're like, man, can you believe they won't let us pray in school? The early church would be like, yeah, so? Well, what about, like, some people at work, they just give me a hard time. Like, I don't even want to tell them about my faith because uh, it's just so hard there. And they'd be like, well, what happens? And then you go through it and they'd be like, wait, are you sure? That doesn't sound too bad to me. Like, and even if it was, like, that's part of the deal. And I guess that's what we're talking about this morning. 
My buddy Tim, he went to church to get. But when you follow Christ, you do realize that we are following him. We're following a, a man who claimed to be the son of God. He said, I and the Father are one. If anyone has seen me, they've seen the Father. When he was asked, who are you? He said, well, let's look at Matthew 16. Open up your Bibles, Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew chapter 16, uh, we're going to start in verse 13. Jesus says this. He says, who do people say the Son of Man is? He's up in this region, Caesarea Philippi. It's like right on the coast. It actually has this harbor. Uh, It's a military outpost. And as he's there in this area, he asks his students, his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, unless you're Jewish, this doesn't really strike you. He's not really asking, hey, what do people think about me? You know, we all want to know what people think about us. Let's be honest here. He's not asking that. He knows who he is. And when you know who you are, you don't care what other people think about you because you know who you are. He says... Who do people say the son of man is? That phrase is a Jewish phrase. That is a phrase that is rooted in the Old Testament. And when he's asking his disciples, who do they say the son of man is? He's claiming who he is. And if you want to, you can go back to Daniel chapter 7. I have it up here on the slide so you can see it. It's uh, in several places in the Old Testament. But you can see it clearly here. Daniel is prophesying about the Messiah, the anointed one. The one that the people of Israel are waiting for. The promised one. And this is what it says. As I continued to watch the vision that night, I saw what looked like a son of man. The term that Jesus is putting to himself. Well, what does this term mean? Coming with the clouds of heaven. And this son of man was presented to the eternal God. He was crowned king and given power and glory so that all people of every nation and race would serve him. He will rule forever, and his kingdom is eternal, never to be destroyed. So when he's asking them, who do people say I am? He's not saying, who do they say I am? He's saying, who do people say the Son of Man is? He's claiming, who do people say I, the Messiah, am? Like, who do they think I am? Do they think I'm the Messiah? So here are some of the responses they gave. Um, This is the next verses from Matthew chapter 16. They replied, Some say you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But then Jesus says this. He brings it right back to them, which is why he even starts this conversation. But what about you? Who do you say I am? And that's my question for us this morning. Who do you say Jesus is? That's what this creed is all about. It's the creed of what we believe Jesus is. But why should we say the creed if we don't believe it? You may think it, but are you willing to put your weight and your trust into this? As we've talked about from the beginning, the word creed means is credo, which is Latin for I trust or I have confidence in. So when we say we trust that our Lord and Savior was crucified, died and buried, are we willing to put our weight into that? Because if he goes there, And we're following him. Doesn't that mean that our life is one that is not going to be lined with candy canes? Does that make sense? Again, this is one of those messages where in the beginning you're like, this sounds pretty gloomy. Like I got some extra sleep. I was pretty fired up. And now you're really bumming me out. Well, I'm not meaning to bum you out. But I want to make sure that we go back to the heart of what it means to follow Christ. Who do you say he is? Where are you headed 
And do you understand that this life of following Christ is costly? There's great gain, but it means to lose this life. It means to lose what this world has to offer us. It means not coming to get and receive, but to give. And let's keep going as, as Jesus not only lives this out, but explains it. So we go to verse 16. And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. So Peter, for the first time, declares that he is the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus immediately says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. Okay, he's changed his name. So this is the only time where we see Simon Peter together uh, with Jesus speaking. And then we see him call him Simon, son of Jonah. And then he tells you, and I tell you that you are Peter. Now, we miss this in English, but when Jesus says, who do they say I am? They give him the answer. And he says, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Messiah. And what's Jesus' response to Peter? Yeah, Peter? Well, I tell you, you are Peter. You get into there? He just changes his name, gave him a new name. And I tell you that you are Peter. First time, only time we know of Jesus giving someone a nickname. He gives them a nickname. His name is Rocky. That's what it means. It never existed. So if you know anybody named Rocky, they got it from this. And I tell you that you are Rocky. And on this rock, I will build my church. Because Peter means Petra, which is rock. And on this rock, Rocky, I will build my church. And the gates of death will not overcome it. So here Peter is, I gave the right answer. You know that feeling like when somebody asks you a question, even as an adult, you try to pretend like you weren't really stoked that you gave the right answer. But you just, you are. You just do your best to try to hide it. So he's given the right answer. But does he understand what that means? Do we understand what that means? Peter does not fully understand what this term means. He doesn't fully understand what it is for Jesus to be the Messiah. And we know that by what he does next and how Jesus interacts with him. So verse 19. I'm sorry, 21. So we're going to drop down a little bit. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples, including Peter, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders. See, they don't believe this is coming. He has to do this over and over and over again. And so time and time again, Jesus explains to him, this is what's going to happen to me. We are going to Jerusalem. And when we go there, I'm going to suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And so Peter has just, just described and explained and confirmed that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. However... Once Jesus says this, this is how Peter reacts. Verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Rebuke him, meaning, you're wrong. No, 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 this is not going to happen. You're off here. Wait, if I'm the Messiah, the Son of the living God, don't I really know what I'm doing? I'm not trying to run away from this. We're going there. This is where I'm headed. This is what needs to happen. And Peter's like, oh, no, 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 no. Because that's going to be difficult. That's going to be tough. Are you serious? We're not going. That's what all is wrapped up in that. In fact, he says, never Okay, you know to never say never, right? Because as soon as you say it, it happens. You know what I said six months before we left to go plant this church? I will never be a pastor. Yeah, I said that. Don't say the word never. So here Peter is saying, never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. See how many times he's thrown out the word never? I'm warning you, don't use it. Verse 23, this is how Jesus responds to Peter. Jesus turned and said to Peter, 
Get behind me, Satan. A little intense. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. That seems intense to us, but it's not. Because anything that leads us off the path that God has planned for us is evil. And this is what Jesus has come for. And Peter has human concerns on, concerns we would all have. What if, what if one of your good friends said, you know what? Next month, I'm going to die. Oh, no, you're not. We're going to get you the best doctors. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. No, this, you, why would you want your... Of course you're going to step up. So he's doing what seems right, but human concerns. Some of you are dealing with great sickness, and you share that with people, and they're like, well, we can't have this. We've got to fix this. There are sicknesses that God has given us for a reason. That is not a popular thing to say, but it's true. My family's dealing with one right now. And we've prayed. I've seen people here be healed of their diseases and sicknesses. And I've seen other people not healed. God knows what is best. Do we really want to entrust ourselves to that? Because Peter right now does not want to entrust himself to that. And Jesus himself calls him Satan. Why? Because Jesus is being tempted. The other time that we know that Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, or something similar, is when Jesus is being tempted in the desert, being tested, being tried. Notice he says here, get behind me, Satan, which is, brings you back to that moment. And then says, you are a stumbling block to me. Jesus wants to do this, but he doesn't want to do this. He doesn't want to go to the cross because it's not really enjoyable. But why is he going? Because it will bless you. Because it will bless me. Because it will change the world. Because it will, he is a savior for the world. And he does this out of love. He will go to this extent. He will go to the suffering for loving others. And Peter wants to stop for these little, his vision, Peter's vision is right here. And Jesus is saying, no, this is why I've come. This is for the greater good. This is important. You have human concerns. Don't get in my way because as we saw him later on, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, Father, take this cup from me. Like, I don't want to go through this. But... Not my will be done, but yours be done. Which means Jesus is not getting stuck in human concerns, but looking to the Father and saying, look, if there's another way, but if this is the only way, your will be done. This is so foreign to us. This is so different from us as Americans. We're like, what? Let's look at verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, because now he's trying to teach them. He's trying to teach them, but he's also teaching them as they're going to lead other people to follow this Christ. This is how it needs to be done. This is how my people need to be. Whoever wants to be my disciple, my student, must deny themselves and take up their cross. Remember, that word cross is powerful to them. And Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet. He says, I'm going to die, but he says, you need to take up your cross daily. That word has a lot of imagery. If you see people show up with a cross at somebody's house at this time, they know where you're headed. That word is powerful. And he's saying all of you need to daily wake up and deny your life and take up your cross and follow me. Not really the most awesome rallying cry. But this is why. There is pain to it, but there's gain. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. 
But whoever loses their life for me will find it. This is not about heaven or hell. You need to understand that. That verse, people sometimes use that. That has nothing to do with heaven and hell. You need to know the words there. And it's the same word repeated over and over again. But translated differently. For whoever wants to save their psyche or your soul will lose it. But the word life is also another word for psyche. So psyche is your life or it could be your soul, depending on how it's used. So it's a play on words here. The play on words is for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. What is it? Their soul. And whoever wants to lose their life for me will find their soul. This, Jesus is calling us to something that is beautiful. It's not just painful, it's good. Right? No pain, no gain. I'm staring at uh, my son's uh, paddling coach. My son, one of my sons, he's a sissy. Great kid, but if he like hurts his elbow, oh, my elbow, my elbow. And I'm like, buddy, you got to learn how to push through. There's such joy. And so he's paddling, and they work him. And he's out there, and he's paddling. And you see, and I have to like not hang out and watch, because I don't want him to go, oh, Dad, I feel not so good. I'm like, leave him with the coach. You know, so he's out there with the coach, and he's, he's digging right out here in the harbor and sprinting. And when he comes home, he's like, that was awesome. He went through that. But you think, oh, he went through all this suffering, though. It must be bad. No, I, I, he doesn't use these words, but he found something. Does that make sense? You know, so many of us that have gone through suffering in our life, we look back on it and we're like, I would never trade that for anything because of what happened in my life through that. God uses the suffering to grow us, but especially when we suffer to love other people. Because this is not just random pain. Hey, you need to go through pain in this life because pain is good. So let's just be aesthetic, aesthetic, not aesthetic. Let's be aesthetic and let's go through all this pain. Let's make it as rough as possible because that's good. No, that's dumb. This is saying, as we love other people, it's going to cost. As we give our life away for other people, that's why you're here on this earth, to give your life away for others. That brings glory to God and loves other people, but it's going to cost. And Peter's trying to talk Jesus out of it. And he's like, no, no, no. Not only am I going through this, but all of my disciples need to commit themselves to live this way. They live for other people. Not for what they can get. They're living to give. And especially should happen on a Sunday morning when my friend goes to worship. He should be going to give. Because when we gather all the believers, that's what should be happening. Let's look at verse 26. What good will it be for you to gain the whole world, yet forfeit your soul? Again, we're not talking about heaven or hell here. Or what can you give in exchange for your soul? Now, I love this verse because I know someone else that used this verse. Someone else that has quite a bit. And the reality is, all of us in this room have quite a bit. In fact, um, what I mean by we have quite a bit is that we've been trained on how to get rewards from others, and we're good at it. And what we've discovered as we've won these awards or gotten these trophies or these approvals for other people, it's never enough. My daughter recently, uh, she got some notes sent home from the teacher. I actually never saw the note. It got put up on our little board, and then I saw it on the board, but I never got the exchange from my daughter. And so it's been up on the little cork board in our kitchen for a week, and it says, you know, your daughter was fantastic. She was great at school today. Sign Senor Lance, you know, the teacher. It's up there. So two days ago, uh, my daughter goes, Daddy, did you see the note from Senor Lance? I was like, yeah. Did you like it? 
Like, why is she doing that? Why, why is she drawing my attention to that? Because she wants me to praise her. Okay, she's six. She grew up in my house, a house where we emphasize that we're here on this world to give our lives, we're here on this planet to give our lives away. Why does she do that? Because she's trained. We're all trained. Like, if I do this and I do this, then people are going to give this back. But God loves regardless of what comes back. For yet, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Another way to say that in terms that we can understand, think of the person right now that you're really ticked at. And I know you all have someone, and they just floated up in your mind. In fact, you probably have a line of people, and they're in a line of order, who's the most you're ticked at, and then it goes back from there. And they're living rent-free in your head. Right? They're in your head. You're frustrated with them for whatever reason. And so you can hear a message like this. And he's, I'm supposed to love them. And so you go and you apologize to them. Even though you shouldn't apologize. It should be them. But you're going to apologize. Because you know you played a part in the severing of the relationship. So you apologize. And you say, you know, it's really important to me. Just like they do in the movies, you know. And you... Because it doesn't really happen in real life very often, so we have to see it in movies or books. So you apologize and do all that. But you're expecting them to say the same thing back, aren't you? Like, okay, and now it's going to work out. And then when you do that, and what typically happens is, is they don't apologize back, and it doesn't get better. And you're like, oh, really? Well, it's on again then. We're off. Because it didn't work out. You didn't get your reward. You went up to them, much like my daughter, and you're like, hey, you know what? Da, 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 trying to do, what you, do your little dance so that you could do what you wanted so they would forgive you so you'd get what you wanted and you didn't get it. Oh, it's on now. Because that's how we're trained. But Christ, while we were yet sinners, died regardless of whether we loved him back, regardless of whether we follow him, regardless of whether we trust him, he would go to the cross again because he loves us. And when we have those relationships that we work through or that neighbor that is so annoying and so rude and continues to be, you love them not because they're ever going to be nicer to you, but because that's what we're here to do. We're here to give our lives away for others. We're here to love. And we want to be smart with it. We want to invest in those that really need it. But there is no one that is outside of our responsibility to love. No one. Not even our enemies. And so this call that Christ is calling us to is heavy. What does this look like today? It's going to be very hard for you to look around here in Southern California and see an example of this lived out. Unfortunately, the best place to see this happen is in another country. Um, I have a friend, uh, Iftikhar, who is in Pakistan. Um, my other friend, JP, just went out to go see him. And JP, when he came back, says, um, Boog, you really, I know you've considered going there. You have little kids and a wife. I wouldn't go. I'm old. My kids are out of the house. I can go. But we, as white people, and especially as Christians, you're in great danger if you go there. We had to have security with us the whole time. And I knew that. They had people, I mean, not like, you know, in some countries you go there, you have security detail, but they don't really do anything. No, like you need it here. Because if you're a believer in this country of Pakistan, you are going to lose. In fact, the poorest of the poor are the Christians in Pakistan. And they're the poorest of the poor because they're Christians. This isn't an anti-Muslim thing. This is a Christian thing. Because the early believers who shared this creed, they knew that when they decided to follow Christ, that they were giving away their status in the world. But yet we complain like, oh my gosh, we can't pray in school. Can you believe that? This early church is like, 
so? Like, when we follow Christ, he bids us to come and die. Like, that's, this is part of the deal. When we follow Christ, we shouldn't expect bennies. There's no benefits that come to us. Here's a reality. And this is going to be painful to hear. And I'm not singling anybody out because the reality is we're filled with people in this situation. And no one here at Branches has told me this, but I know this. Uh, uh, when, when I was a pastor at Shoreline, um, when I wasn't a believer and I knew when people would go to church, I, people go to church for all different kinds of reasons. Sometimes we go because we want to hear the music. Sometimes we go because we want to hear the teacher. Uh, a lot of people will go to church because they're looking for someone to date. I know it's a shocker. None of you have ever heard that before, but I know of guys that will go to certain churches because they're like, there's a lot of girls over there. And there's girls that never say it because girls can't say that. But girls will go to a certain church because there's guys that, I got to leave this church because I'm going to go over that one because they've got these guys. And that way I could, you know, either date or get married. There's some people that go to certain churches to network because it will be beneficial to their business, whatever that may be. Because it's like some people join certain clubs. You know, it's, that, it's been around forever. Like the Rotary Club or this club or that club because you network and you can make friends and, um, and that can help you. Uh, I, I could go on and on about that, but there's these different ways to network. Another thing people will do is like, you know what? I want to come because my kids, I want them to have a faith. I don't have one, but I want them to have a faith. So I'm going to go to this church for my kids. There's no coming and dying. It's coming to get. And so I'm going to do this for my kids or it's youth group. You know, this youth group is really great. And I have a teenager and I don't know what to do with them. So I'm just going to bring them to this church and hopefully they'll fix them because I can't handle this. Or they don't have a faith and I want what's best for them and I don't want them to have to go through what I went through as a teenager, so I'm going to take them there. Coming to get. My friend in Pakistan, this is what he said to JP. JP asked him, so are you worried about your life? I'm not worried, but I know I'm going to die because of my faith. I know it. Like he knows he's going to die. He is not going to live to see his grandchildren because he is a Christian. He's a leader in this community. We don't have any connection with that. We can't even understand this because we've lost touch of our roots. And this creed, this creed brings us back to our roots. Because when they said that Jesus was crucified and died and buried, they are saying, yes, this happened. Yes, he was a convicted criminal. We believe it was unfair. We believe that he lived and died and rose again. Even though all of you don't, and even though we know we get nothing by believing this from you, but we believe, and here we stand. That's heavy-duty stuff. Nowadays, people want to f- believe in Jesus because, like, what, can Jesus help me? Can Jesus change my life? Can make things better? Because I don't like the way things are going, or I'm upset about this, or my marriage is bad, or I'm depressed. I just want things better. Almost like that magic food supplement. Like, oh, wait, what, what tea is that? Does this tea? Oh, it fixes everything. It's the magic tea. We all know the different snake oils out there, right? People use Jesus in the same way. That's not the intent. That's not why he came. But I promise you this. Jesus came so that we could have life and have it to the full. In fact, I love, I want us to go back through Matthew 16 right now. And I want us to just highlight a few things as we close. Because all you hear is the gloom of, of suffering and giving your life away but i want us to notice here um what good will it be for you to gain the whole world yet forfeit your soul what's the opposite finding your soul right um 
Rob, can you do me a favor? Go back to the very first part. And we're just going to go through it and I'll highlight a few things. I want us to look at um, verse 21. Can you go to verse 21 of Matthew 16? So if you have your Bibles, go there to 21. Notice that Jesus said that on the third day he would be raised to life. Like we can grab on to that death, but there is life at the end of that. Now let's go to verse 25 and 26. Those who lose their lives do so in order to what? To gain them. To get real life. And we don't have it up here, but if you go to verse 27, um, the same Son of Man who is to be killed will come in His Father's glory to judge and to be seen as King. Like this, what Christ is calling us to is life. He's calling us to death, but He's calling us to death so that we can find life. And I'm not talking about heaven. Here, today, now, real life. Not this imitation life. Not what the world has to offer. But real life, not the rewards and medals and trophies that you get from other people, but the real life of knowing what it is to be alive. And I want to close with John 10, 10. And I'll invite the worship team up as they um, lead us uh, in, our, in our prayers. John 10, 10 says this, I have come that they may have life and life to the full. Christ is calling us to give. He is calling us to serve, but in that there's fullness, there's real life. And I could tell you it, I can I could explain it to you, I could give you my own testimonies I've done before. I could have other people just stand up randomly and make them come up here and share, but I won't do that this morning. I may do it to Jer. Maybe not. But instead of that, I want to challenge you to put God to his promises. And see what life would look like if you didn't come to get, but you came to give and actually follow Jesus and trust him. And see what your life would look like differently if you weren't here to consume, but you were here to give. So if you could stand with me as we pray. Father, this is beyond scary to think of a life where we come to serve and not to get. But Lord, we want to trust you. We believe. Help our unbelief. Lord, bring us back to our roots. Bring us back to trusting in you as you really are. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.